continue our morning series through this fourth gospel in the New Testament. We come to verses 12 through 50 uh, today before we begin, Lord willing, the upper room discourse next week. And what I want to do to get us going, however, is just read verse 12 through 23, because as we'll see soon enough, verse 23 is altogether important in this gospel and even our text this morning. So let me just read those brief verses for us, and then I'll pray for our time and And we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we are your servants, and we ask this day that you would give us understanding that we might know your truth. Our souls so often know discouragement and distress, and we pray today you would give us life according to your word. May your gospel be a lamp unto our feet and a light and unto our path that we might see Jesus, he who is the light of the world, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A man named Julius Caesar was marching towards Rome in 49 B.C., He was marching towards Rome to initiate what would become a Roman civil war that would end the Roman Republic. At the time, Julius was this powerful and popular military and political figure that was understood to bring some glory upon the land. And it was on January 10th of 49 BC that he came to a shallow and small river in northeastern Italy. And as he prepared that morning in the winter chill to cross with his army, he hesitated there in the shallow water. Because to cross over into that territory was itself an act of war. It was against the law in the land. And so as he was there in the shallow water, he cried out to his soldiers, Let the die be cast. And he began his march towards Rome. And ever since, that phrase, let the die be cast has become something of a synonym with passing the point of no return. That shallow, small river was called the Rubicon. And in a similar way, 
Crossing the Rubicon has become synonymous with a decision day, a decisive act. And the reason I tell you that is because when we come to John's Gospel, chapter 12, and where we find ourselves in that chapter, it's in John's Gospel, Jesus letting the die finally be cast. As he is making his march towards Jerusalem on Passover week, and his plan of redemption, he's crossing the Rubicon. Because what you're going to see along the way today is as though the people, they were expecting this political, military figure who would bring glory, restore glory upon Israel. He was actually coming to bring a different kind of glory, a different kind of salvation. For Jesus, the time has come to finally die. And the reason it's important to recognize how this text is all about how the time has come is because up until this point in John's Gospel, we've heard Jesus many times utter a particular phrase of timing. That in the way in which he has uttered it, it's altogether mysterious and enigmatic because he's never defined it or even described it. So here's what it sounded like almost to our ears by this point in our studies. If you can think all the way back to chapter 2, it's Jesus performing his first messianic miracle. His mother comes to him as he's at this wedding feast and says, Jesus, uh, the wedding wine is run out. And if you remember, his response to his mother Mary is, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. Two chapters later, he's talking to the woman at the well and he says, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In the very next chapter, he somewhat mysteriously says, hey, this hour is coming. When the dead will hear God's voice and they will live, even in chapter 7, these religious leaders who are so antagonized against Jesus with his teaching, they're, they're ready to arrest him, they're ready to take him and seize him by hands, but John reports that he slipped away rather silently and secretly. Why? The hour had not yet come. But finally, in our text today, we see that the time has come, because if you glance down again where we left off in our reading to verse 23 of chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so the theme that I want to bring to your attention from our text this morning is the time has come. And it leads me even to realize this morning, every time that God's people gather on God's day here on Sunday, there's a genuine sense in which we ought to say, and we want to realize every time we gather as the Lord's people on the Lord's day, that that very phrase, that very theme is fundamentally true of all of our experiences, isn't it? The time has come. Because if we understand God's providential dealings correctly and recognize that he sovereignly rules over all things and thus all people, it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence, is it, that you are gathered here this day among these people to hear this truth, to respond in ways that the Spirit prompts in your own heart, it's fair to say, isn't it? Every time you gather on the Lord's Day, it's right to say the time has come to meet with Jesus. And so what I want to do in our rather large text today, verse 12 through 50, is show you four ways in which this text is pointing us to how we ought to respond to Jesus, that the time has come for four different things. 
And what you want to begin to notice in verse 12 is it simply tells us the next day. So we have to situate ourselves in the story at this point. Uh, It's been two weeks since we were in John. Just remember, two weeks ago, we left off in verse 11. Uh, Jesus was at a house in Bethany. So he's about two miles away from Jerusalem. It was only a short time before that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had made a journey into Simon's house. It was there probably for celebration and gratitude of uh, Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead, that he's eating with his disciples, with Lazarus' sisters, and Lazarus himself is present there. And you might recall, students, it was there during the meal that, that Mary comes to Jesus. She takes this incredibly expensive oil, this, this perfume, and anoints Jesus' feet. And what we're told is that was really preparation for his coming burial, even signaling that his death was soon going to take place. Uh, But the religious leaders, because they were so upset by Jesus' popularity after raising Lazarus from the dead, all the attention he was accruing to himself, they had decided, well, it's time to put out a warrant for his arrest. And so as Jesus was getting nearer to Jerusalem, Passover week is at hand, the people were wondering, we saw two weeks ago, well, is Jesus really going to show up? In Jerusalem, knowing that there's a bounty out on his head. And what we begin to see in verse 12 and following is that Jesus, yes, is of course going to show up in Jerusalem. And I want you to see, first of all, in our text, that it's time to praise him. Because you see, verse 12 continues the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know how large the crowd would be that was going to come out to meet Jesus outside of, of Jerusalem. You know, students, we talked about a few weeks ago how Passover feast, it was this highlight in a Jew's ordinary year of religious fervor and devotion to the Lord. All males in Israel, age 12 and up, were commanded to go to Jerusalem to make the journey up to Holy Mount Zion for this festival of Passover week. And so some scholars would say it could be well north of 2 million people they're crowding around ancient Jerusalem on Passover week. So however large the crowd was that comes out to meet Jesus, we don't know how big it was, but surely it would have been striking in its size. And not only striking in its size, but striking in its singing. Because you see verse 13, they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. A phrase, Hosanna, comes from a psalm we sang earlier Psalm 118, it simply means, if you just wanted to translate it most directly, give salvation now. So you have to understand what the kind of salvation is that these Jews want. These Jews are expecting Jesus to bring. And it's actually quite easy to understand what kind of salvation they want and what kind of salvation they think Jesus is going to bring when you realize they're waving palm branches. Uh, By this point in Israel's history, palm branches were something like political flags. So some of you have been, maybe have been to 4th of July celebrations in years past, or maybe one of those kind of small town parades that often belong to a 4th of July procession. And if you've ever been there before, it's pretty common, isn't it, as the parade kind of goes down the town and through the streets that you see people lining the sidewalks, often many little kids with these little American flags waving them about. This is what a palm branch meant in ancient Israel. For centuries before, they'd used palm branches at significant political moments of celebration. 
So when the temple was rededicated under the Maccabeans, palm branches waved about. When, when Simon overthrew the Syrians, palm branches waved about. In later Jewish wars against Rome, the insurrectionists would put, the insurrectionists would put palm branches on coins because it was a symbol of this political freedom for which they were after. Even uh, much Jewish apocalyptic literature and this kind of end-time restoration of Israel speaks about palm branches being used. And so here they are, waving these political flags as Jesus is making his way into the city, saying, Give us salvation now, Lord. You see, they continue, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they're hopeful, they're desirous, that finally, at long last, the Messiah has come. Someone who would overthrow the tyranny of Rome. Someone who would break the yoke of a Roman rule over the Holy Land. But they didn't realize that Jesus is doing something quite different. And it actually should have been plain before their very eyes. Because you notice verse 13 simply tells us, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. So here's a king coming into a city, riding a donkey. And kids, I don't know what you would expect to ride into a city if you were king or queen, if you were a monarch or a royal leader. I doubt many of you would choose a humble little donkey to ride into a city. But that very carriage underscores Christ's humility in this moment, his gentleness, his lowliness in this moment. Because even as verse 15 tells us, it fulfills ancient prophecy, doesn't it? Verse 15, quoting from Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the text in Zechariah goes on to speak about how this king was going to come with this noticeable meekness, this noticeable lowliness. It's actually not uncommon at that time for kings to enter into cities riding donkeys. If a king rode into a city on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. If a king rode into a city on a horse, it was a sign of war. So here's Jesus coming into a city. The people are desirous that he's going to overthrow Rome, yet he's riding in on a donkey. It should be altogether apparent to them that his agenda is not their agenda, that his mission is not their mission. He's on a donkey, not a war horse. But maybe you know your Bible well enough to know that there is a time, the Bible says, coming when Jesus will ride a war horse. That's when he returns at the end of the age, isn't it? To usher in his final kingdom, to bring about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, to conquer all of his enemies. The white rider will arrive. And you will therefore praise a man, a king, a messiah, riding into your midst. Now, you can praise him today as he rides into your midst by his word and spirit. And no life and no salvation. Or you can praise him or after it's too late at the end of the age when he rides in with this white war horse and the scriptures say everyone will bow their knee before him. But many, even a countless many, will bow before the right rider before it's too late. Well, These people are praising him not only for the fact that they want this political salvation. You see they're praising him according to verse 18. The reason they went out to meet him was what they, he had heard. They had heard that he had done this sign, that being raising Lazarus from the dead. So we're seeing again 
as we've seen so often in John's gospel, this kind of central motif that belongs to Jesus' ministry that so many people, they're, they're interested in the miracle more than the Messiah to whom it points. They're interested more in the sign than the Savior that it illustrates. And the Pharisees, of course, they're only agitated further. Look at verse 19. They say to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's a way in which children, they're saying, We need to do something quickly, swiftly. Otherwise, all is going to be lost, and we're not going to have a chance to get the people back. So it's time to praise Jesus. As the text moves into the next scene, verse 20 and following, it's time to seek Jesus. Some of you have been around that Redeemer long enough that you might be able to know the date of when the first part of this sanctuary space was dedicated to the Lord. I wonder if you know what year it was. I know precisely what date it was. And I wasn't even here. It's May 7th, 2006. I know that very well. And the reason I know it very well is because of something that's actually right in front of me right now. A number of you have been here for long enough to know that this pulpit was constructed at that time in 2006, but of course because not very many people stand behind this pulpit, you don't know that there's something written right here where my hand is knocking. Okay, it's this tiny little gold plaque, two inches by five inches maybe. Uh, My hand, every single time I'm behind this pulpit, rests naturally and regularly right where this plaque is. And it's got simple words inscribed upon it. Simple words that now come from our text. Simple words that just say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They're worried, the Pharisees, that the world is going after Jesus. And the world, actually, in a way, is going after Jesus because as the text now calls us to seek Jesus, we see that the world represented by these two Greek men are interested in seeing Jesus. You see verse 20 and 21. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I hope you know that's the best request you can make every single day when you wake up. I want to see Jesus. Kids, when you come home from school, when you think about what you might pray at family worship at night, no better request could you ever make. Lord, help me see Jesus. Those of you in your spheres of authority, parents, teachers, pastors, church leaders, there's no better thing you can give to anyone under your charge than here's how you see Jesus. Jesus. But this request, interestingly enough, sends Philip and Andrew back to Jesus, and then he unfolds for these disciples, not for the Greeks, for for these disciples, finally, that the time has come. Because you see, again, he says in verse 23, he answered Philip and Andrew and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's clear enough in context here in the coming verses that Jesus is speaking about the time coming for his death. And so first you need to see the glory in his death. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
And I wonder if you've ever thought before that it's there at the cursed cross at Calvary that not only is Jesus crucified, but we have the greatest divine revelation of who he is out of the Son of Man. That the fullness of his majesty, the fullness of his splendor, the fullness of his glory seen there outside of the city of Jerusalem as he's lifted up on a cursed tree. That everything you would ever want to know about Jesus, everything you must know about Jesus, there, lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. And now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. But actually, in the course of this dialogue, Jesus seems more intent on the necessity of his death. Because you'll notice how the text continues. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. My kids, I'm not sure how well-skilled any of you are in farming, but maybe you can understand the simple illustration Jesus is using here. He's saying it's just like a, a kernel of wheat that must die in order to go into the ground, and through that death, new life comes from that seed. And he's saying the exact same thing is true of the Son of Man. He must die. I must die, Jesus is saying. If there's to be any fruit, I must die if there's to be any life. And this was something, if they read their Old Testament well, that his disciples and all those that were hearing Jesus preach should have understood, but again, they had so missed the point of his agenda and his mission that they could not conceive of this kind of a Savior, one who would be slain, this kind of a leader, one who would lose his life, this kind of a deliverer, one who would die. I wonder if there's any ways in which your own thoughts about Jesus' mission in your life, Jesus' agenda for your life, are so out of sync with what he's clearly revealed. It's time to praise him. It's time to seek him. And as the text continues, thirdly, it's time to follow him. P.O.C. says, verse 25 and 26, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, what was it that the famous missionary martyr Jim Elliot said? He who is no fool to lose what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Sounds a lot like, doesn't it, what Jesus has just said here, what's recorded in other gospel passages. What profit does it bring to a man to gain this whole world but forfeit his soul? But if you lose your life, you will seek it. If you give me your life, you will find it, is what he's saying He's calling, of course, disciples to follow in the path of Jesus Christ. One that is the cross before the crown. One that is humiliation before exaltation. And I want you to see there at the end of verse 26 how there's this wonderful promise that belongs to you this day, this coming week. Do you want to have fuel to know to follow Christ fully, to 
Walk as he walked, live as he lived, prayed as he prayed, serve as he served, love as he served, love as he loved. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see that divine promise of honor, dignity, and glory from the Father's throne in heaven. Follow Jesus. My Father will honor my own. And I was with some students at the seminary earlier this week, and we were thinking about these kind of ancient models of, of rhetoric that belonged to the world in which Jesus lived. And, and we spoke at one point about what the classical rhetoricians mentioned as peroration, this kind of emotional, climactic conclusion that often belongs to discourses and speeches. And it almost seems as though, at least as I read the passage, that it would now be time in Jesus' mind as he's speaking to those that are listening for that climactic conclusion, that, that, that peroration that's powerfully going to draw people's affection and attention to himself. But look at what he says in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. It's not the kind of peroration-like moment you would expect there at Passover week. My soul is troubled. If you want to have an idea of just the degree to which Jesus' soul is troubled in this moment, all you need to know is that that word troubled, it was used earlier in John's gospel, it was spoken of as the sick man who would enter into a pool and disturb the waters, trouble the waters, churn up the waters. And what Jesus is saying here, as he is thinking about his time coming, of his death, that his Soul is troubled just like a boat motor would churn up water behind the vessel. Because he says, notice, continue, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's his Gethsemane moment here in John's gospel, isn't it? And what you need to understand, students, is Jesus is talking about the time has come. Finally, at long last, the time has come for the Savior to die for sinners. And Jesus is staring into that moment, yes, with resolve, holy determination. But he's also staring into that moment with holy horror. Because he knows what's coming. Nothing was more shameful or humiliating in the ancient world than to be crucified. Nothing was worse, more horrifying or terrifying and knowing you would drink the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. Jesus is going willingly, lovingly, sacrificially to that cross, but he understands the holy justice of God that's getting ready to fall on him means, Father, let this cup pass from me. But glorify your name. Not my will be done, but yours. Don't ever think lightly about God's judgment. Because what you see here is Jesus never thought lightly about God's judgment. So he prays, doesn't he, at the beginning of verse 28, Father, glorify your name. It's humble submission to the will of the triune God. And then a voice, the text says, splits heaven. The Lord speaks from above saying, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The people there listening wonder if it's thunder from above. It's an angel speaking from above. And Jesus says, no, it's the Father speaking from above. But it's not for my benefit that you heard it. 
It's for your benefit that you heard it. Notice what he says, verse 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John inserts, verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Because it's a clear nod, isn't it, to the fact that he's soon, he's only days away, five days away, from being lifted up. And it's in his lifting up there on the cross that he's going to defeat the devil. It's there lifting up on the cursed tree that he's going to draw all men to himself. And again, what John's unfolding for us as the text spins forth is that the people are altogether confused by what Jesus said. They're saying, wait, we thought the Messiah was going to live forever. Oh, what do you mean he's going to be lifted up? I mean, who anyway is this Messiah that you're talking about? Jesus says, notice verse 35 and 36, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe the light, that you may become sons of light. Do you see he's saying here, a time has come for our fourth thing. Time to believe. You're not guaranteed any more than those people to have light with you for very long. Believe the light that you might become children of the light is what Jesus is saying. The time has come to praise him. The time has come to seek him. The time has come to follow him. Now finally, fourthly, the time has come to believe him. You know, if you're young children or grandchildren even, or anything like my own, it's rare as a week passed by where there's not this game of hide-and-seek that happens in the house. And the weather was pleasant enough this week outside that I noticed many times, looking out through a window, kids outside in the front yard, side yard, backyard, played in hide-and-seek. And, and one day earlier this week, I noticed out the window uh, one of the children trying to get into the garage. Now, the reason it was kind of interesting to observe is that the garage had been cracked only about like eight inches from the driveway. And so I see one of the children trying to stuff himself, you know, into the garage. And I didn't see the other kids running about, so I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to find a hiding place. And if you get in there, surely no one would be able to find you was his idea. And I tell you that because what we're told at the end of verse 36 is Jesus was very good at hiding. It's one of the more striking things in the Gospels, how good he was at disappearing and not disclosing himself. Because you see, it tells us when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That's John now beginning to narrate the end of Jesus' public ministry. He's going to spend just the next few days stashed away with his disciples. Really, the next four chapters are going to occupy us in John's gospel with just one night of him, Jesus, Jesus being with his uh, disciples. But we've seen so often in John's gospel, as he says in verse 37, that all these people were seeing the signs, all of these people were noticing the miracles, yet they still weren't believing him. And now, had the, time, now the time had come in Jesus' own sovereign purpose to hide himself from the people. That they wouldn't see him again until the crowds would call for his head. 
that would call for him to be crucified. That's why whenever you hear the preaching of the gospel, you have to know that the time has come. You're never promised anymore. Jesus might hide. But the good news is he isn't in our midst as he's speaking to us. But what John does here at the end of this section we so often call in chapters 1 through 12 with the book of signs, he finally, at long last, gives us the theological reason for all the unbelief. So if you ever ask the question, why is it that so many people who saw Jesus so clearly still don't believe in him? Well, look what John says, verse 38 and following. So the words spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. They have not believed because they were not appointed unto salvation. And it's one of those truths that John's gospel actually, even already by this point, has has borne out in ways that which so often in our own experience and thinking Isn't it true? It's hard to understand how the twin doctrines of man's responsibility to believe find such harmony with God's sovereignty over who believes. Uh, John is again trying to illustrate for us both things are true. The Jews are utterly responsible for their hardened heart. And God can still say, I've decreed that they won't believe. And some of the good news, even in this tension present in our passage, is you see the degree to which God in his sovereign providence can take unbelief, sin, rejection, persecution, and turn it into the greatest good. You see that? It's there, rejection, unbelief, persecution, opposition to Jesus, that what? Is going to kill him in just five days' time. And in killing him, Life is going to come to his people. And so what John does in verse 44 through the end is he gives us something of a fitting epilogue to this book of signs. It began in chapter 1 with this long prologue, 18 verses, outlining this summary of who Jesus is, what he was going to do. Now what you see in verse 44 through 50 is this epilogue that just kind of encapsulates many things, the essential things. Uh, that John has unfolded for us in the previous chapters. And uh, so central to John's thinking and all of these signs and recording all of these miracles and, and uttering all of these words from Jesus is that we would believe in him. Notice it again, verse 44 through 46. He cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The next few verses, he simply says, Everything I've done, everything I've said has been according to the Father's express command. So he can close this book of signs by telling us yet again, What is the commandment? Notice verse 50. I know this is his commandment. Eternal life. That's why you have to believe in him. For life is found in no other name. The time has come to praise him, seek him, follow him, believe him.
I imagine many of your weeks are like mine. You wake up in the morning and think about how you're going to use your time. You go to bed in the evening thinking about how you didn't use that time and the way you wanted to. And the pattern repeats. I was with a group of aspiring ministers earlier this week and we were talking about the necessity of of time management and ministry and how, of course, in anyone's sphere and vocation, you just can't get it done. You can't live faithfully if you don't manage your time with wisdom. And somehow along the way, we began to talk about the way in which God's time impresses its sovereign mystery upon us as ministers and church leaders. And what we were talking about is how in God's providence, he so often seems to work sanctification into his people. Yes, surely, but also quite slowly. That his time is not our own. Sometimes he works altogether quickly. Other times it's just a slow slog in the same direction. Now what I want to do here at the end is actually show you two ways in which this text speaks about that kind of time. And let it further urge you to recognize the time has come. Because what I want to show you in verse 16 is the time it takes for God's people to see Christ clearly. The time it takes to see Jesus clearly. You see, we're told in verse 16, his disciples, they didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. There are so many people that are professing Christians that genuinely, sincerely, and truthfully believe Jesus, but they just haven't seen him clearly. And maybe you can think about times in your life where that has happened. You've been in the church hearing gospel preaching for years and years and years. And then something you've heard for years and years and years, it just clicks. And you finally see him clearly. Maybe that's the kind of click-like clarity that Jesus is meant to bring to you this morning. That for years and years and years, in a text you've heard time and time and time again, he wants you finally to understand the fullness of who he is. A savior who came to die. The fullness of what he has done. Lifted up that he would draw all men to himself. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ must always be proclaimed as utterly central. Because it's the absolute magnetic center of the Christian faith. It's here at the cursed cross of Calvary that Jesus says, Everyone will know who I truly am. There's great time sometimes that it takes to see Christ clearly. Secondly, final application. The time it takes to stand courageously for Jesus. Because notice what John tells us in verse 42 and 43. After speaking about the prophecy in Isaiah, he says, Many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I wonder if such a declaration could be spoken over your very life. He loves the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
a sincere, true believer. Maybe he's speaking here about John, these stories he heard from Nicodemus and other political religious leaders like Joseph of Arimathea, these men, these men that feared men more than God, loved man's glory more than God's glory, and only in time began to stand courageously for Christ. Aren't there so many genuine, countless Christians even, that live as though their deepest longing is not to be laughed at? Not to be jeered at. Not to be despised as a true follower of Christ. But as time passes, if you truly have come to Christ, you'll begin to see him clearly, won't you? Day by day, and with each passing hour, also standing for him courageously. So I wonder if that belongs to you this morning. The time has come to see him clearly. The time has come to stand for him courageously. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would stir up within our hearts this day the victory that has overcome the world, our faith in a crucified a buried and risen King. So we pray this day that by your word and spirit you would stir within our hearts an ever-increasing faith in an unseen God, an unseen Christ, an unseen heaven, an unseen judgment day, that we would know this faith that overcomes fear. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.